his mentors and his role models in his older years in education and in career were women and women of color. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. All right, everybody, welcome to the Bro Nouveau podcast, the podcast that is normalizing healthy communication for men. Today, I am super stoked to present an awesome conversation with my good friend, Mel. She is an incredible person, and we've always been able to have really great conversations, and that's shown through on this one. Enjoy. Okay, and we're live. You're very welcome along. Hello, Mel. How are you? Hey, how's it cooking? Yeah, fantastic. How's it cooking? Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> Looking good in my kitchen. Yeah. All righty. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to, to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. I'm stoked to, uh, to see what, what comes out here. So what's your normal routine look like these days post-mid-lockdown? Post post-mid-lockdown, yeah. It's opened up a little, which is kind of nice. Um, you know, you think about the two things that people most need in this world to sort of survive and feel connected is touch and your breath. And those things, those two things were like taken away from us in so many ways at so many times, you know? So, yeah. So like the, that whole year, I mean, most of us were unprepared to how to build that resiliency without touch and, and um, our breath course you can breathe at home and practice your meditation if you did but um those two things are so integral to our our resiliency and our joy and our and our ability to feel um complete and safe um so it's nice that things are opening up right so we're seeing friends now you know and spending quality time and I've just been hanging out with girlfriends who I haven't seen in a while, which is so nice to have that connection with my other women of color. In fact, in this city, mm. I was so isolated with me and a dog. Um, and sometimes yeah, I got I to see you too, to, you know, like, let's not downplay that. That was really nice to get to yeah. be a new person. Um, totally. That was a total lifeline. Yeah, that was a lifeline. Yeah. Little morning coffee sessions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the touch I can totally see, but what do you, I guess when you say that the breath was taken away, how do you mean by that? The mask limits your comfort, oh, yeah. right? And um, at the same time, we all felt sort of, you know, psychologically and maybe even symbolically um, stifled and our hand was put over our mouth. We couldn't speak and yell and scream um, because we had to keep it together in some way. Um, And then literally in the hospital, um, and I'll just say I work in a hospital, um, COVID patients' breath was taken away. That was it, you know, the breath and um, isolation. So we all lived with it in so many different layers and ways, and I think it really made us face so much. But, uh, yeah. It it was hard, right? Super hard. 
And then to be away from our families, some of us, like myself, who have family on the East Coast. uh... Totally. I think that was a lot of my friends kind of dealt with this this guilt around their family and and deciding whether or not to see them. And there was this weird, like, trade-off of, well, I didn't go see my family in out of state, out of country, wherever because of COVID. So now I, this wasn't me, but in this for my friends, like now I feel like I can't do anything where I am presently because if mm-hmm. I get COVID, you know, doing my everyday life, mm-hmm. then all that work I did to not see my family was wasted. And I, I'm, you know, it's like, you yeah. can't, you can't freaking win. Yeah. I will say though, uh, the healthcare inequities were um, extremely exposed on so many levels this year um, because of who was admitted and who was getting sick first and who was getting and who was dying. Um, and I saw, you know, it wasn't just one person in a family. Um, a lot of men of color died and multiple people in their families died. And I can't imagine what we're going to be experiencing for the next couple of generations because of that loss. When you lose a grandmother, a father, your mother, and an aunt all within weeks, um, I don't know what that's going to do to just, aside from you and I who, I mean, I've lost some people myself, but aside from you and I who are just mitigating grief and sadness, the the a lot of people of color are are coping with multiple layers of grief and sadness and loss and um it should be inter- I, and i don't want to minimize it um mm-hmm. it's going to be very telling in the next couple of years as we see how this has impacted our community and our community i mean in a whole um all of us yeah, for sure. I mean, so the just for anybody who you know hasn't thought it through or considered why <clears throat> that is the case about people of color who more exposed and affected. Yeah. Um, I mean, frontline workers, for example, mm-hmm. working in food service or working in um, as a driver. Yeah. You know, at least in San Francisco, where where we met. Yeah every third driver I've, I had as getting a Lyft or Uber was Brazilian, for example. Exactly. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, yeah. And then do you, did you see anything like in the hospital particularly like, um, well, I guess when you say that you saw, you know, these black men and kind of generational Mm -hmm. black and Latino men. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, was that from like your own, your own friend group or from, you know, at, at the workplace, at the workplace, the hospital yeah. census. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that was crazy too. Right. Cause then people couldn't have Visit. guests. Right. Yeah. 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 Oof. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, we had to come up with ways of connecting with patients that were isolated, um, through phones and, um, other forms of communication and connecting families. Um, while also understanding language barriers and religious differences um, and uh, just people being kind of, you know, 
we're talking about 40, 50 year old, some 60 year old people being hospitalized and looking at the end of life, like in ICU beds, who never have had conversations of, of what they, their wishes were. Um, and um, so it, it was one of those years. <laughs> Let's not do it again. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then I think about like, we as a society, like so many other places are just deal with common, constant trauma, you know, constant trauma and PTS forms of PTSD. So we'll get through it and we're getting through it. I just hope we do better and I hope we're take, we learn from it. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. um, yeah, one of the, like the th- kind of a parallel lesson or idea is that this was actually a great thing from when I was in high school. We had this little presentation about the invisible backpack. Oh yeah. Right? So it's like, you know, what is a what does a kid bring to school that isn't visible, or like, you know, what does he have he or she on their shoulders, yeah. and that applies to adults too. Um, yeah. And especially part of like the mission or the ethos of this podcast is to kind of expose people like myself, right? So namely young white guys, straight white guys mm-hmm. who haven't ever had that exposure to understand that, you know, not to minim it's not minimizing anyone's problems. No, yeah. But it's kind of just thinking about how there are things like structures and issues that one family deals with that mine never did potentially. Yes. Yeah. Or definitely. <laughs> yeah right right um yeah right on mel well well said uh right. said. so sure. yeah yeah so let's let's talk about you though for a little bit like how, who are you how did you end up in oh. this position where you're working in, in uh-huh. healthcare and mm-hmm. and living in san francisco yeah um let's see i grew up in new york city <laughs> upper west side if anyone knows the upper west side of manhattan um, very diverse uh, part of the of this of Manhattan, I should say, economically diverse as well. So um, you know, my neighbors were either really wealthy, and then I had neighbors right next door across the street that lived in housing projects. So it, uh, for me, um, it was the I am so grateful. It was a gift to be able to see all sort of spectrum of where how people lived and how people understood each other. Um, and my grandmother, so I should say that both my parents are Puerto Rican, making me Puerto Rican. And as in New Yorkers, we are like a, a special group, which we, you know, we're stamped as New Yorkans, which is like the, yeah. Cause, oh, know, really? That's yeah. cool. I've never heard that term. Oh, really? New Yorkan or Boricua. But New Yorkan is, is something that is uh, very... Puerto Ricans in New York, I'll say, I'm a New Yorkan, um, right? So my both my parents are Puerto Rican. My mom was born on the island. My dad was born in Brooklyn. Both came from extreme poverty. Um, in fact, my dad's, um, one of my dad's brothers, before they left the island, um, before my dad was born, actually died of malnutrition. That's how poor they were. Um, yeah. Yeah. And wow. um, this, was, this was one of your uncles? Yes, one of my uncles. And then when they came here, he was lived in Brooklyn. And, 
you know, my dad's upbringing was, uh, he jokes about it, but it's actually really sad. Um, they moved around a lot at night because his father couldn't pay the rent. So they would sneak out and leave at night and just ditch the apartments, um, for a long time. Wow. Yeah. And my dad learned how to play pool at eight years old in Brooklyn and became a pool shark, as he called it. Yes. Yeah, making money. <laughs> so my dad was, he, he literally shined shoes, sold potato knishes, um, and uh, pool shark, and was an ass- assistant <laughs> to a magician. <laughs> all before 13. Yeah, all before 13. Assistant to a magician. And then he helped, like a synagogue in his neighborhood during Friday, um, you know, at Shabbos, Shabbos, um, this Friday was sundown. You can't touch electricity or whatever. So he would go and turn people's lights off for them and light up candles in their apartments. So what they call them as a Shabbos Goy, I believe is the term, a Yiddish term for this. Um, and meaning that he helped, um, the, 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 the Jewish people in his neighborhood, during uh, like Friday sundown. Anyway, so that's he, incredible. Yeah, so um, he was he went to college. He was one of the only people in his, at his brothers and sisters who went to college, and then went to law school and became a politician. So he's like this. Yeah, you didn't know that. My this dad, is this is my your dad. grandfather or no, your my dad. dad. He ran for oh, Congress. Oh, a legend. <laughs> he's a legend, and he was really handsome. I'm going to tell you. Like I see pictures and I'm like, damn, like, damn, damn puppy. Puppy. He <laughs> good. I was like, okay, I know. <laughs> but like, he was like, no, no, yeah, whatever. But, um, yeah. So he, he was knew a, he, he had he, to have known. He had to have known. Like, I think he yeah. got, I think he got, uh, votes just for his looks. Um, what, what did he run for? Congress in Brooklyn, the 11th district. Wow. Yeah. And he worked for, the mayor, um, Ed Koch, and mm-hmm. he worked, in fact, my parents met during the Kennedy campaign. They both, my dad was what they called an advance man. So they helped sort of set up whatever, wherever Kennedy was going, John F. Kennedy was going to do a speech or whatever. He would go ahead before the candidate would show up and set up like wherever they were speaking and like, and then meet with the local democratic parties. And my mom was part of the young democratic party in her area in Manhattan. And that's how they met. Oh, yeah. So, and, and he was like, I'm going to have you. And she was like, no, I don't think so. And then he worked on it for about four years and then got it. <laughs> So, wow yeah. yeah that's inc- yeah. that's my aunt i just had a great weekend with um some aunties in um florida and my aunt uh, lee who is a legend um she told me the story about her husband ron i'd never known this that he was ron's a professional musician he's a piano player mm and um an organist and he was playing at some bar he was like he was the piano man and lee was i think serving as a as a waitress and every saturday she would work there and for like 12 saturdays in a row he came up to her and said hey you want to get some coffee after the after your shift and she said no 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 13th saturday 
Ron just says, fuck it. Like it's not going to happen. And so he starts to leave and walks up the stairs and Lena's like, Oh, Ron, like, aren't you going to ask me, <laughs> you know? And then that was finally the time that, that, uh, you know, they got, they got together and, and the rest is history, but nice. I love it. Yeah. Those stories of persistence, right? That's, persistence. that's a common, Yeah. I mean, wow, that's incredible. I've always known that you had an amazing relationship with your dad, but I never knew that, those stories. That's, I mean, he could have had a book written about him. It sounds like easily. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of things written about him, not an actual whole book, but there has been some. He's he had um, he had a pretty strong run in New York and known, um, and maybe that's why my relationship. So let me talk about my relationship with my dad because it is a really beautiful relationship of pure love and respect, um, and because he respected me, he always treated me like an individual. Um, and didn't matter what age I was, everything, my opinions mattered to him. And he always was humble enough to listen to them. And so most people think that politicians and, you know, lawyers have this huge ego and they're sort of narcissistic. And um, he's not. He's like the pure opposite. It's all out of his feel. He always told me that. Um, our job, our responsibility as human beings, and especially for us in the growing up and, and for me, was to give back to the community. That is our responsibility. And that's what he instilled in me. But, um, you know, he always made me feel really special. And he was the one that exposed me to art. He used to take me to the Metropolitan Museum. When I was growing up, he would take me on little dates. And I would get dressed up and put on my, like, you know, velvet dress and my little oh. black, you know, like my little black, you know, uh, pant leather shoes. And he would take me to the museum, Metropolitan Museum, for any kind of special cocktail party evening. So he'd always take me to these cocktail parties and fundraisers in the city. And I would be like his date, but he would, he would introduce me to like well-known people from New York and movers and shakers as if I was a super special, intelligent child. And I was pretty normal, very normal kid, right? I mean, so much of that is incredible. Like if I think about male, what we're trying to do here, male modeling, like yeah. for me, that's an incredible archetype almost of, of a positive nurturing grandfather, right? Like he was obviously the man. Oh, he was my father, but yes, he was. He, oh, this is your father. Sorry. sorry. This is yeah. my dad. Yeah. 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 So he was obviously like successful, accomplished, yeah. you know, competent, yeah. but that's not what you took away right you you took away how much he loved you and made you feel special and mm-hmm. um and listened to you i thought that was a huge one too right like oh I gosh mean, yeah especially you know this was not the current generation of fathers right so even older 70s. school yeah and he was yeah. still like interested to hear about your opinions which as a young girl i i mean how many of your girlfriends have had that at home right no Definitely not. And especially in, um, you know, we want to, I want to acknowledge as a Puerto Rican man, that's even uh, a, a huge leap mm-hmm. um, because men, there's a machismo. And I, I understand, you know, in our country, it's a white supremacy doctrine and paternalism is our form of, of um, leadership. And in the Latino community, 
the, machi- the machismo is real too. You know, the men sort of are the, the, the rulers of the home and, and they dominate. And that is not the way he conducted life. And that's not the way he conducted his day-to-day or his work environment. Um, yeah. So that, that unconditional love and listening and asking questions and also really being okay with me disagreeing with him and also showing him a lot of emotion. Poor thing. My father drove me to, um, to school and high school every day and he had to be in the car with a teenager with raging hormones <laughs> and emotions and like for a an hour, moody. a bit moody. And I would cry hysterically. <laughs> I would get in the car and he'd be like, did you have your breakfast? And I would blow up in like tears and as if I had this horrible oh. life. Um, oh yeah. And you know, I went yeah. to this, yeah, poor girl going down. Dad was driving her to work. Uh, I mean, I hurt him to work and driving me to school, right? And this, uh, I went to this nice private school downtown. Life was not hard at all. But obviously, when you are raging hormones, like everything is tragic. Like, you know, one... I still feel like I'm there some days. <laughs> me too. Oh, well, now for me, well, let's be, let's be totally transparent. At 49, I think I'm perimenopausal. So I'm like, oh, I'm like a teenage girl again. I'm fucking I'm the shortest <laughs> temper. I want to cry at the like drop of the hat. And I'm like, why do I feel so fat? Yeah. All these that's, horrible That's things. probably why we connected because it was like, <laughs> oh, this is another like wild. <laughs> On my, I just did my intro, my intro pod, and I, I claimed that I have no little to no inhibition in the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's still true. <laughs> I think that might be true. Yeah, but that's yes. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah that reminds me of of um, um, Kendall, my my girlfriend. Her relationship with her dad is sounds very similar. I haven't right spent a ton of time with her family yet, but yeah. She talks about how he like took care of everything and had breakfast ready every day and, and was just so nurturing and supportive. And I see a lot of parallels because you're you know, you're both super badass and confident, right? And yeah. I mean look Thanks. at like you moved cross country, you set your sights on a, I imagine a global setting and at some point, you know, thinking yeah. about my life can take me anywhere and and I yeah. mean kudos that you absorbed his lesson of giving back right because you you work in that space and your work is yeah. incredibly impactful so i'm sure yeah. he is I'm, I'm sure he told you he was very proud of you yeah yeah sure he thank you he drove me to the airport when i left new york to come here mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um yeah by himself and uh yeah and he said to me, um, well, of course, he hugged me and said he was proud of me. And then he said, don't come back. But not in a mean way, in a really powerful, loving yeah, way. Yeah, he's like, like, he's yeah. like get out of here. Get out of here. Don't even come back over here. Yeah, no, he was more like, don't come back. And, 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 you know, six months later, he was diagnosed with cancer. And I was here and I thought, wow, I just left. And this is when he most needs me, you know. I, my background is in hospice and, and end of life and serious illnesses. And I left and he gets sick. Um, he's still alive, but uh, he's now dealing with Alzheimer's and, but a survivor of cancer. Um, so, 
Yeah. And even then when I said, should I come back? He was like, absolutely not. You know, like, no, I've lived, I've lived my life. You're, you go do it. Um, mm-hmm. I wish he had been more forthcoming or given me a heads up. Maybe he didn't know what women No, I think he knew, but I wish he had been more forthcoming of what women of color face in the workforce. Um, we didn't really talk about that too much, uh, but that's okay. I don't blame him for it. I just was like, I wish I had a little bit more tools because I kind of didn't realize what I'd be facing, you know, when yeah, I got. Um, <clears throat> what were and are some of those things that you are, are referencing there? Yeah. So, I, I you know, uh, I was totally sheltered in a very wonderful, diverse community of growing up. And um, I went to this elementary school that was built on Martin Luther King's belief of um, sort of equity in education. Uh, it's called Manhattan Country School. And then I went to this Quaker high school. And they were both mm. private schools, granted, but they were very diverse. And um, so I was living in this little bubble of diversity and openness. Um, and more progressive than normal. And then I went out, you know, to college and then into other work environments and realized um, not everyone's like that, you know, and um, got ignored a lot. You know, you're, you almost start to feel like unspoken is you're lucky to be at this table. You're lucky to have a seat at this table. We've given you uh, a break and allowed you into our environment when you get a job, I mean. And so it's like this unspoken sense that you should keep your mouth shut. Don't stir the pot too much. Be thankful for that you have this seat. And when a lot of the times, and I've noticed this not just with myself, when women of color speak in meetings, no one hears us. And then someone else says it, whether it's a man or a white woman or a white, or a white man. And everyone goes, that's a great idea. But this happens all the time and you start realizing that it's not in your head. You're not crazy, that this is our reality. And how do we get, so I'm picking up the nonverbal, you're lucky to be here. I'm also picking up, but you don't stir the pot. Don't ask too many questions. Don't be different. You can't be another, um, you know, quantity production is more important than the quality. Um, so you pick it, you learn really quickly that. Um, yeah. And, and that's part of the white supremacy doctrine that we've all been raised in this country, but it's really embedded in our workforce a lot of the time. And so you, when you don't, you get thrown into it, it's a hard lesson. And then you're sexualized as a woman, right? And you're sexualized, especially as a Latina. There's this whole, those, all those stereotypes, people laugh about them and the JLo thing, but they, people say stupid shit. And it comes out. And so you're getting sexualized, but you're also getting ignored. Um, And you have to downplay your sexuality and you have to almost come across um, dominant to be heard. And that's like an uncomfortable, that's not authentic, right? But you learn quickly that you cannot, don't, you know, in certain workforces and work environments. And I, I worked in healthcare and in nonprofit. And so you don't get dressed up and wear heels and show off your anything too sexy at work. And you have to kind of be a little cold 
you can't show your loving, you know, personality. Just so right, because that's yeah. that's half an half half an opening for some exactly you know, for someone scumbag to who's going to be like, oh, she, yeah. yeah, oh, like I think she's hitting I mean, on me, or oh, like oh, like now I can like tell her that her ass looks good in that, and even then, like someone you, you could be as cold as you want and as distant as you want, and people will still be like, yo, you look good in that dress. Right. Wait. And by people, um, it's best we mean men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't really know. Yes. In fact, I'll tell you a story of my first job at hospice in uh, New York. I was working in an inpatient hospice in a hospital. And this nurse was showing me around the hospital. And I got in the elevator. And it was her and I and three doctors, all in white coats, older men. And this is when I first became a social worker, uh, right? And end of life. And the first thing before I was introduced to them, because the nurse knew the three doctors in the, in the elevator happened to be, I think they were all oncologists or something. One of them said, while looking at my breast and up and down, oh, you must be a new one. Jesus Christ. And I was like, first of all, I'm in this closed quarters in this small elevator. My first job in a wonderful hospital in New York City. And the first thing I get is totally sexualized and then kind of stripped with his eyes and like the the other two men are sort of agreeing with him. And I've been minimized, insulted, embarrassed, humiliated, and then had this other woman look at me like, Oh, you're going to be trouble because obviously you're giving off something. So then I was blamed. Right. Right. She was like, what did you do? And I was like, what did I do? I mean, you're standing right here. So all of that comes into play as you're, also trying to, yeah, so that was like, I got like, you know, all these levels of like, so many levels, so many bullshit, so much bullshit. And at the same time, I've told you, Thomas, and I, we talked about this, that the reality is that most men have to know that every woman you come in contact with has either been sexually abused, verbally abused, threatened, has had some form of sexualization that has made them feel threatened. And any woman you've met, you meet, or, or teenager has experienced it already. And so even in that exchange where I was with another woman and it was in public, I still felt, once again, taken. Something was taken from me. And it chips away. It's like, you know, we talk about the little nicks and cuts. Um, and so even when you're joking or you're, you have to be really mindful of speaking to people you talked about the packet like the backpack we those are facts all women have experienced something some point in their life where they felt intimidated sexually or you know or actually abused and have a story or multiple stories and so be mindful of that when you interact with them when you stand next to them when you come into their space especially in a work environment because um it triggers, and I don't care how much work you do as a woman, you know, working through those things, it can still trigger it. Um, where I think I spent like three weeks not getting on the elevator on the oncology area. That's how bad it was for me, where I literally stayed in the hospice inpatient floor because I was afraid of what else would happen. Thank you for kind of walking through all of that and there's so much there to, to, to unpack. And I mean, 
talk about complicated. The other one that jumps out at me is around how the intra intra female dynamics, right? Of like in that yeah. example, the other woman in the elevator is now has you know you have a target on your back now, target right. in her eyes, and that's because of the structures and how the men are treating you. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. such a such a mind, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh my god. She was probably thinking like, great. Now they're not going to take us seriously. And these oncologists are going to like, we've both been, our self-worth and all of our education has been minimized to sexual, being sexualized in this one second, you know, comment that maybe he was not really like that, but, or maybe he was trying to show off to his friends or whatever it was. They weren't young men. They were older men. Um, and and I, I don't want to chop it up to generations. But I will say what I have taken away just talking with you on this, it's interesting, the process is probably why people go to therapy. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think why my father was different was that he was not just raised by women and his sisters, but his mentors and the people like his mentors and his role models in his older years in education and in career were women. And women of color. Um, so what I guess I would impart is that I urge all men to find women to be their role models, their mentors, to see, to, to ask questions, to listen, but ask more to understand and confirm and reaffirm what you hear when someone's telling you a story or talking to you. Because we do speak very different languages and generations and you know, our backgrounds and our ethnicity and everything else comes into play. If you don't really understand, ask again or ask for clarification um, because then we're bridging that gap, right? And you're with the upper hand as a white male. Um, when you When you open your mind and your door and your heart to listening, you're also kind of making someone like myself feel heard when we're not, when we normally walk through the day, not feeling heard um, in general. And then I'd always be like the starter kit for everyone should be that book, white fragility. Right. By have you read that? It's, did you read it? No, I, I haven't. Oh my so God. Busted. Busted. No, dude, <laughs> I am telling you white okay. fragility by Robin D'Angelo. She's from San Francisco. Badass bitch. And I should probably kill nice. me for saying that. Maybe, I don't know. She would right, be like, don't right. call me a bitch. Hood feminism. Awesome. <laughs> That's another great book, but white fragility is like a must starter kit. And then there's two other ones that I think are really great. They're a little bit older, but they're very, they're strong. American Dream by DeParlay, Jason DeParlay, I think his name is. And what, what blood can't, well, what blood won't tell, tell us? What blood won't tell? Um, it's, he's a lawyer and last name is Gross. Um, and then the other one, oh, one more. The New York, I think he's a New York, um, a New Yorker writer. Um, Talking to Strangers? Talking about race, maybe? No, it's just called Talking to Strangers. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's heard, good. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, White Fragility first. That is like the starter kit for all, for any white young man. 
and any white person in general, I think it's the, the, and I would say, read it, put it down and then read it again. Cause I've read mm. it three times and it like, it's just an evolution of like reality. I mean, look, you know what I look like. Right. So I, I don't fool myself that some people think I can pass. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I'm like mm-hmm. the safe, I'm the safe Latina Puerto Rican because I don't always look what you are envision. So I recognize my privilege as well. Every day I understand my privilege on many levels. <clears throat> so that book um, freaking just blew my mind. White fragility. Awesome. Can't say it more. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I commit to you. I, I will read it. Um, and there's two things I want to <laughs> pull out from that last little segment. So the first one yeah. is about recognizing privilege, right? And yeah. I think that's a a barrier and a, a point of resistance for so many privileged people. Totally. And me sitting here listening to you, you know, if you can acknowledge your privilege after having just explained many of the things that you deal with on a daily basis that come from not having privilege, yeah. then any man yeah. should be able to acknowledge their privilege. Not saying that, Every man starts off with the same experiences and everyone has, you know, everyone has their shit. Yeah. But I think that's amazing. And it's a great example of like, call it empathy, call it not humility. being an egomaniac. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, humility. yeah, it's humility. Exactly. Yeah. And the second thing too, is I want to make an argument for why this, this kind of uh, more diversity and inclusion mindset is valuable. So one, obviously there's the moral kind of conscience triggering side of it. Yeah. Um, but for the people, for the guys out there who don't care about that and are not really moved by that, yeah. you can, if you just look, look at it from a career development and networking side of things, Yes. if you are able to have compassion and interact with compassion with people, your career is going to go so much further. So much than further. If you, if you are known as that oncologist in the elevator mm-hmm. who's a freaking perv, and dismissive or and you know what i mean like this it's if if you're not if your heartstrings aren't pulled then go to your wallet because you're going to be your net value your net worth is going to be higher over the long run if you were able to have these conversations and be empathetic amen amen i don't want to leave out that my mentors and most favorite people i worked with in my career since i've been what is this like 28 years? Ah! Two, two years. Oh my two years God. in. It's only been know. two years since I graduated. Your um, 21st was so much fun. That's <laughs> wild. But seriously, <laughs> my my mentors and role models and favorite people I worked with have been men, have been my male bosses. Mm. And I totally don't, I don't ignore that because they all right. really what I'm saying you need to do and what you just talked about is what they did. Mm. And um, it does, it's not lost on me how, how, how lucky I was to have these men that were my bosses and had a leadership role and a control if they wanted to. And most of them were white men, but they didn't. And they were like, you know, and, and, and so I, that's not lost on me. Um, and I'm so grateful for that too. So just so you know, I love you, man. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not, yeah, no bashing. All love. No, no, it's all no love. Male, yeah, it's all love for everybody, and it's, it's there's. I think for any for any guys 
engaging with this content, it, you know, has to start from a place of humility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what it's all about. I mean, and you For know sure. what is attractive to people is humility and somebody who can yeah. not think they're a, a, a hero all the time. <laughs> yeah. And privilege does not mean we're saying you're bad or that you have already made a mistake or that you're effed up. Privilege is not an accusation and it doesn't mean you change it or you pretend you're something else accept your privilege and then it, you know, and then we unpack it and there's so many layers. Um, and you can't live in every second acknowledging it, but when it matters, take that moment to think about the different, the privilege, the, the, the place that you're standing in. Will do. Well, Mel, I, I consider you a role model of mine. Oh, and- I love you. I love you too. Thank you so much for getting on here and sharing your story and your thoughts. And I think this is going to be, this was very, for me personally, very impactful. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Right on. I send you mucho, mucho love. Y besos. Y abrazo. Besos y abrazos. I always like, I always like to say I'm old enough to be your mother. I'm, she's my mother. My mother, she's my, my soul sister. sister. Word. <laughs> Word. Yes, girl. Love you. Yeah, queen. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> Love you okay. too. Bye. Bye. All right, folks, there you have it. Thank you so much to Mel for getting on here and sharing her story with incredible grace and for the wisdom that she, she shared with us all. And thank you, listener, for being here. Every Thursday, you can tune in to the Bro Nouveau podcast. We'll be putting out an episode every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts please excuse my terrible spanish also i am working on it and that's it folks this is the kind of content you're gonna come to love and expect from the bro nouveau podcast we're normalizing men talking about the topics that need to be discussed we'll see you next week have a fantastic day